Has Rishi Sunak scored, let's just be fair here, a big success with the Northern Ireland Protocol? Or does it reveal that getting Brexit done simply gives us a really unworkable deal for everyone else in Scotland and the rest of Britain? Something that Northern Ireland will hopefully now escape. Um, looking at the SNP, runners and riders, how are the leadership candidates doing? And how is the debate maturing uh, beyond lots of sensational headlines? Are we getting a sense of who will be a really effective leader? Um, also, the rumblings uh, from Westminster about yet another intervention in Scottish politics, potentially over the bottle deposit scheme. Will somebody just step up and defend the Scottish Parliament's right to legislate? Those are the headlines. Now for the podcast. Hi, chums, and welcome to this week's uh, Leslie Riddick podcast. And, you know, sometimes numbers count. And I know, apparently, even according to Gregory's girl, men are obsessed with numbers. And at one point, uh, it was around about 13,000 people had taken part in that national poll on who should be the new leader of the SNP and First Minister of Scotland. Uh, it was around about 13,000. By the end of the day, when we, you... You actually identified the fact that this sounded pretty dodgy getting that number of 13,000. It got up to 600,000 people were, were, had actually responded to this and it just blew a hole in the whole thing. It was all sort of bots and stuff going on. So beware of numbers, folks. Yeah. Beware of numbers. Well, I think actually it's beware. Really, probably the National have had, had to sort of think a little bit about this too because They've put up, as everybody puts up these days, um, you know, we polls on Twitter and polls or whatever, and they're not really guarded by anything. I mean, the problem for the national one was you could basically vote, just vote again, mm. vote again. And and that's it's almost, <clears throat> you know, hearts back to the good old days where people kind of imagined that if you didn't have, you know, a huge um, grinding axe at the back of you, you would probably just abide by it, vote once, get out of it, and you'd have something resembling a kind of, you know, not still not sort of statistically re um, accurate reflection, but still something. Whereas this um, has blown, you know, this is such a kind of heated, uh, heated mm. contest because it represents all the issues, all of them that have been kept simmering under, you know, the, the, the lid of the SNP leadership for the last, I mean, probably decade. You know, it's a long, long time. Yeah. And each candidate sits as a kind of proxy for many, many perceived hurts and annoyances and whatever. Um, and of course, as we've said many times, in any other situation than the one we're in, half the blinking electorate would not be sitting backing one party in a proportional system. So <clears throat> lots of people have had to put a sock in it for a very long time. And then all those kind of uh, energies and pressures are being pivoted through human beings, you know, the three candidates with all their comments and sort of idiosyncrasies, particular beliefs and so on. So it's making for a blooming heated kind of arena to be in. And there's no way that if you put up a normal little kind of, hey, everybody just be, be, be careful, you know, but just play by the rules, but we're not going to be able to enforce them kind of gig. You were going to get people blowing it apart, you know. So, I I think anything that has six hundred thousand votes, sadly, in Scottish politics in a poll voluntarily done is kind of a bit fishy. You know? But, <laughs> but still, that was after the I, event. You know, at the time yeah. when you were looking at it, it's still in the morning. It, it it doubtless still had the look of something that might be quite viable.
Yeah, and and of course the the number six hundred thousand does have some somewhat significance within the whole uh, debates about independence and money. Anyway, yeah, but I mean, I was I was interested, Leslie, when I, I read your Herald article that something occurred to me there, uh, and maybe a way to kick this off is this becoming a clickbait leadership election with the media putting things out there in clicks and and ramping up the heat, which which you identified when you were, for example, uh, the bloodbath of Alan Cochran, where you're on the Jeremy Vine show. (laughs) Uh, Well, yes, uh, I I guess. But I mean, what what the the column was about uh, really was trying to ask what 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 makes a very a good leader, you know, what makes a great leader and part of it, obviously, there's all the things that are currently being discussed, the details of policy. It's got to be somebody who gets policies that animate most voters within the SNP and then by extension in the country and everything. <clears throat> people who've got connections and respect in the party. Key point, people who can uni- unite the different faiths and outlooks and backgrounds of the country. Um, but all that or someone feared by the opposition. I mean, that point's been made that it's Kate Forbes that the opposition fear most. But I'm just try- I was just trying to lob back in <clears throat> also someone who's able to take Scotland along paths that we know we have to tread, even if you'd rather not, <laughs> mm-hmm. even if you'd rather sit off sometime next century. Things like that green transition, you know, it's got to happen. Um, the, the sort of modernising of the social background of Scotland has got to happen. There's various things that have got to happen. And if Nicola Sturgeon's uh, made mistakes, and she clearly did. The big failing in many respects was not being radical enough, as in uh, having objectives, having targets, having, you know, the, the, the end goal, but not seeming to spend much time thinking about the quite radical steps you'd need to take to make that goals real to, to realise them. Viz the National Energy Company, for example, you know, I mean, of course, suddenly with the Ukraine crisis, it threw into very sharp relief the folly of not having set something up. And the reason given by the Scottish government, which was that it would run into problems with the Westminster government about uh, borrowing powers, because that wasn't within the devolution settlement. Well, I think there's a lot of people thinking, you know, I'd rather have gone to the wall defending that than what we're ending up having as arguments with the Westminster government over things that are arguably less central popular Mm -hmm. policies. You know, we're going to end up having arguments with the Westminster government. It's how they hang, you know. So if that's the way that things are going to go, then what what could have been better for Scotland and for clarifying where we stand on something that is absolutely huge than having tried to set up a national energy company in Scotland? We're now even, as we've discussed before, going to get Anna Sarwar's, you know, mm-hmm. we hand me doing branch economy, you know, a wee arm of the big British energy thingy coming our way if if Labour win. So there's going to be a Scottish energy company. It'll just be a wee diddy one. We could have had a proper one, even if it required a big argument. We could have looked for, for money from elsewhere. We could have at least made points, at most created something that would be pivotal for our future and would have got everyone's peckers up and could have been connected up strategically to a total framing of independence. But we didn't. So instead, what we had was, yeah, the most ambitious green goals in Europe, blah, de, blah, de, blah, with no means of getting there. So, you know, what I'm interested in is let's not chuck the baby out with the bathwater. You know, in in terms of vision, 
And I know people want to have a big argument about the gender recognition stuff. But if we could please just put that into one corner for a minute. The overall vision of where Nicola was trying to, to take Scotland, I think most voters actually had not much argument with. And probably thought, you know, we got used to the the, the, the business of of Scotland. And I know that a lot of people choked on their cornflakes when they might have seen this bit in the Herald, that Scotland over the last 10 years, certainly, and possibly a bit earlier, became the thought leader in these islands. Mm-hmm. You know, yes. everything. And that's not just the SNP. That that was within. And this is the important point as well. This is the parliament beginning to get flex its muscles because Monica Lennon's period poverty bill has led the world in looking differently at the, you know, the essential requirements of being uh, born female. So um, there's a whole lot of stuff that has been quite good about the way we've come to this point. And I want to know, in this contest, essentially, who has the ability to take that legacy and run with it? And to do that, you would need to be able to, I mean, I was quoting because I'm writing this book, I'm uh, I'm up to mocksters and fascinating stuff actually about <laughs> about the sort of psyche of Scotland, and I quoted the fabulous uh, Alan Breich, the professor of Scottish literature at Glasgow Uni, who was who was observing that to him, kinship across differences is the is the foundational story of Scotland. Kinship across differences, and he traces that from Columbus to Malcolm Canmore, which literally means great leader in Gaelic. Um, both of whom endorsed the understanding that a nation is made up of different groups, languages, geographical areas, terrains, economies and cultural preferences. So all I'm asking is who will best uphold kinship across the variousness of the nation's people? And that takes a lot of personal skills. And if you ain't got them and a lot of people will say you're you're kind of putting the bar pretty blooming high here. I mean, Nicola didn't like it in your book, so who do you think is going to lie put out of the three? Well, the next best thing is who recognises that if they alone haven't got the capacity to Mm -hmm. harness that, who can deliver genuinely collegiate leadership? Um, You know, so that, to me, all of these things are things that the, the Scottish media need to ask. They need to ask what the vision thing is for five or 10 years down the road. You know, they need to tease out the fact that you don't get anywhere by being one person is not an island. They need to kind of get get these bigger things. I mean, this is not a pretendy parliament that these people are running. This is a parliament that could be an, an independent country. And if Labour are even to be semi-believed, they'll chuck another couple of powers our way if they get in to keep us quiet. So, you know, what, there's stuff to do here. So where's your vision? Not the blimmin' ball return scheme tomorrow. Not, I mean, we'll come on to that. But, mm-hmm. you know, what people are constantly doing is just knocking down um, eye-catching, headline-grabbing specifics. And those are important. But I do want to hear how people, how passionate people are, how, how much vision they've got, because without that, they will not make a good leader in the sense that Alan Reich has described, a great leader for Scotland. Yeah, I mean, I was particularly taken by that quote from Alan Breach, whom I, I, I didn't know his writing at all before that, but I mean, I was particularly taken with that. And it, it is that thing, though, that when I, I, I watched, I mean, we'll get on to all the candidates' uh, points and, and go through their similarities, their differences, their stances on things that are significant. But I mean, I, I, was, I, was, I was thinking to myself, this is a really odd one, Mika, to quote uh, a Manfred Mann hit 
I'm the semi-detached suburban Mr. Joyce on this because it is that lack of involvement, Leslie, and it's the worry that the, the there is a there's an attempt there's preaching to the SNP membership choir, if you like, going on, and that's absolutely necessary in order to become elected. But again, what we have is the fact that they are actually going to be the de facto leader of the Yes movement as well. You know, and 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 that's the problem I have with it. It is it is a really odd one where I'm sitting outside of it, uh, questioning every single candidate. And what occurred to me at that point is the analogy that you made when you're you're purchasing a home and thinking about that in terms of independence. You don't think about the process. You think about the destination. But within any circumstances, when you're buying a home, as I found out, you inevitably have to make compromises in terms of your purchase. And that's what's going to happen, I think, when we examine the the, the, the three candidates. Um, so it, it's uh, again, watching Lauren Koonsberg, of course, the, on, on Sunday, and when reflects on the way the media is handling it, she spent the vast majority of the interview with Hans of Youssef talking about the divisive issues in terms of social policy and social stances without ever referring directly to Kate Forbes, but focusing on directly on Kate Forbes's beliefs and the potential for the conflict that might have in a progressive Scotland uh, in terms of becoming first minister and being acceptable to the broader Scottish electorate. But I think this is because, uh, really, the the British, the Westminster media finds Scotland boring. I mean, right. fundamentally boring, um, because we're just a we're just another slightly puzzling, not quite the same version of them in terms of their domestic stuff. So it's kind <laughs> of like, and to be fair, probably people find <clears throat> the same in reverse. You know, who 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 here can tell me in great detail the workings of the English NHS system? Yep. Right. So, I mean, that's part of the argument, in a sense, for independence. We're all bored with one another. You know, no one is going to micro know the, you know, the workings of each other's systems. So that kind of stuff, which, however, they will then everyone will dutifully nod and say that these are the bread and butter issues that everyone cares about. And it's perfectly true that if you ask anybody, they'll keep putting health, education, etc. right up top. It's just too boring to explore across borders now. Um, so one way of doing it is if people have strikes, that slightly titivates it, makes it a bit more interesting. So then you can focus on especially the individuals. If they're interesting, if they're not, then you just dump them. I mean, this is the way it kind of works. You know, if there's strikes in England, then they notice and fair play to them. They notice that the Scots have mostly managed to get more strikes solved by speaking to people like humans mm-hmm. uh, than they have south of the border by strutting around and trying to turn it into a big political battle. But by and large, you need interesting personalities and sort of um, issues that are overarching and don't bring you down into the the workings of detail. So when we get to talking about the Northern Ireland Protocol, no one's talking about the detail of what was signed anymore. They're all just talking about, you know, whether the do you, you know, Boris Johnson's going yeah. to intervene. Right. So every policy immediately gets morphed into the individuals, the colourful individuals and the big sort of issues that can pop up on top of it. So with Kate Forbes to walk in um, and to have, you know, previous and clear views about gay marriage, which both all countries have just been through. So it's kind of something that, you know, everybody can perk up and be interested in. That's going to make Westminster very interested in her and and everyone, to be fair. So once that had sort of done the rounds and, of course, 
her emphatic responses made that a big sort of talking point. Um, then it's it's basically, you know, the whole campaign started off with the register turned up too loud. You know, so everybody then, the other candidates were having to match these this loud, you know, interest for, that Kate had produced with other loud kind of ideas of their own. So it's... It's it's hard to conduct, very hard to conduct this this leadership contest in the time frame that's allocated, and you know with so much going on in the background. Uh, but but for sure, I think Westminster's interest in this is massively more what Kate Forbes is about and what you know faith is about. They will keep returning to that mm-hmm. until they think that one's worn out. Um, Whilst, you know, candidates can come in and sort of say, well, you know, I've got faith. No, but we're not interested in your faith. It's this version of faith and that dilemma that she faces that we're interested in. What do you think about it? And that will, you know, hopefully, since she's also moved on to other issues, maybe we can actually get to, a, you know, the, the size of debate that Scots deserve. Yeah. I mean, it was when you mentioned the gender recognition certificate, uh, Stushy, in the section 35 there. Uh, I, I think that the gender recognition certificate, uh, I mean, basically on a personal basis, if anybody actually listens to what I say, I, I do think that there should have been amendments placed within that. It, it was flawed. However, I genuinely agreed with Nicola Sturgeon on the basis that this is not just a challenge. This isn't a challenge to the, to the government. The Section 35 order is a challenge to the Scottish Parliament. And I'm intrigued to get your, your perspective on the fact that both Kate Forbes and Ash Reagan have turned around and said, "Well, we're not going to we're not going to challenge in the Supreme Court the, this this Section 35 order because we have to have significant issues with the Gender Recognition Certificate Bill." But, but hang on a minute, this was a, this was passed by the Scottish Parliament, and that that's why I'm, I'm disappointed in the two of them because this is a challenge, as we're going to be talking about later, that is going to become more and more often with the operation of the Internal Market Act, and it will be appear to be Section 35 orders coming thick and fast now with more muscular unionism being expressed by the Conservatives. Yeah, I mean the Tories have got to be just laughing like drains today, to be honest, on a whole number of fronts. But, I mean, the Internal Market Act, that was absolutely something that, you know, when that came in, I think it was fairly successfully weaponized isn't quite the right word because it suggests that there was nothing inherently dodgy mm-hmm. in it. And whoa, there was, you know. So we all have to basically close ranks to try and get any poxy, uh, you, you know, deals thanks to this dread, the dreadful Brexit that is still dreadful, despite Rishi Sunak looking like he's pulled, you know, off a really workable settlement from Northern Ireland. It is still a dreadful Brexit, which actually just, by the way, casts such a contrast that the people of Northern Ireland have had everyone go the extra mile to try and accommodate the difference mm. that sits between them and the British outlook, whereas Scotland, with an even more profound difference, gets hee-haw, but still. Um, so, yeah, it, th- there was there was a real lining up of when these guys come over the top looking to try and smack down anything that creates difference in Scotland, um, you know, we've got to be ready for them because that's what actually not just, just as you say, that's what the Scottish Parliament is for, you know. Yes. I mean, what what is the point of having something that is basically a parliament on a lead? You know, it's like walking all the folk out with dogs at the moment. The dogs get so far and then boom, they just hit the <laughs> end of the lead and back they come. Now, there is no point in having a parliament that has to operate that way. None whatsoever. 
But the two issues that will look most likely to get the initial <clears throat> Section 35, that'll be enough for you guys treatment, are, are the ones that are possibly most debatable. And we're listening to James Cleverly this morning on Good Morning Scotland, just before we started speaking there. It's very it's very worrying as well, the way that they have been able to cast this, because they're not coming in to sort of get, obviously, the Tories never fight on the battleground of essentially reality or how we would perceive things. So it's not about a battle of wills. It's not about the different sovereignties. Well, of course, there's no sovereignty in the Scottish Parliament. It's not about stampy footy and it's not about putting you in your place. It's because these are bad laws. So what James cleverly is able to wade in on is just saying, well, I've just been listening to your programme, which obviously he hadn't actually because he'd just been racing around every different broadcasting outlet. But still, um, and he said, you know, there are obviously major, major concerns about the workings of this legislation. So once again, the British government will 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 cast themselves as the sort of valiant, you know, crusaders who, despite being pilloried at every turn by the revolting Scots, will canter back up the A1, you know, to sort of come to the rescue and put these little people back in their place and say, ah, you had a good wee shotty there in your wee pretendy parliament. You tried hard. You've tried to be a wee bit progressive, but you basically screwed it up because you're not that clever, really. So the adults will come back into the room, make it all okay. You guys go and sit in the back benches and we'll just say what the whole of your population is saying, but you can't even hear it. You're shite. Yeah. Now, you cannot let that stand. You can't. Uh, you have to, of course, if there are problems with this legislation, and it would seem with, with, with both of them there are. And actually, you, you would have to say, I'm not sure there has ever been a piece of legislation yet with which there are not problems. <laughs> no problems, yeah. Right? So, again, uh, I've been speculating about this a lot in the business of writing the book. It is entirely which problems are brought to your mind that dictate what you focus upon. It's not that everything else is perfect, you know. So this has got to get a major kind of pushback, but it's not going to because at least two of the three candidates have have said, well, OK, on these ones, I think we're going to basically kill two birds with one stone here. We never like these bits of legislation or we don't like the, you know, the finishing of it or mm -hmm. even we don't really like the Greens. Yes. Um, so all of that is sitting within the response. And that's tempting. Of course it is. But, you know, if you the bigger thing, and this is coming back to the bigger strategy thing is you have to get off. And Holmes, I think, needs to do this with more verve because it sounds like he's at the moment. It can often sound like he's just turning over a fairly tired. Somebody tell me so I've just got to repeat it kind of mantra. This has got to be invested with major blooming energy. To, to absolutely say there is no point in having a Scottish Parliament and all legislation has difficulties. We're working through it, you know. So, yeah, it's very disappointing how this is happening. And of course, that's creating a sort of sometimes it's a bit like, I mean, you, you've spent more of your time at the back of theatres with sort of props and bits of stuff potentially falling or down around you than mm -hmm. I have. But I kind of get that feeling that it's like people standing on a stage and bits of the scenery are starting to move <laughs> around them or fall off perches yeah. or stuff like that. And kind of it's quite unsettling because you're aware whilst you're trying to concentrate on the actors that there's big sort of changes seeming to happen behind them. And it's hard to kind of focus. So I would just uh, just like people to be able to address these larger points, because this is a key point now for, you know, not just independence, but the strength of the Scottish Parliament, as you say. 
Yeah, I mean, and, and that that was clear to me because again, I was uh, I watched. Uh, the again because the section 35 that looks like it's going to come in uh to do with with uh, the deposit return scheme and again all the candidates have said that there's going to be a delay and i listened to lorna slater on uh, scotland on uh, on sorry on the, the the on sunday uh being interviewed by martin geisler and uh, that that whole thing about to do the internal market act did come up and i went back and checked i mean this was all raised a cog a good Two and a bit years ago, with the potential of the of the the, the single market act to actually override progressive green legislation in Scotland, which the, uh, this actually is. Um, I, and again, I don't want to. I suppose I'm going on about it now, but I mean, what I find particularly galling was that industry spokespersons coming on, and, and the, the the chief executive of Innocent Gun said this absurd. This absurd legislation, just a, a sweeping mm. away of it, without any regard to the fact that there are over 40 countries who are operating very, very similar schemes, you know, which yeah, seem and, to And work. a lot of the big operators have actually helped design this one. Yes. You know, but you don't kind of hear too much about them, either because they're not coming forward or they're not asked. Yes. So what you end up with is, you know, you, you end up with, obviously, all the problems are easier to get people to speak about now. Um, so you get a lot of that, and I'm not saying it is, you know, problem free, but uh, yeah, it's it's not it's not like somebody's going in and saying, well, let's get the whole sweep of the entire industry reaction on this. Uh, so, and it's very unlikely to happen now because that uh, that whole issue is now being tackled through the prism essentially of the candidates' views yes. upon it. You know, so it's um yeah, it's a it's yeah. a bit of a messy old trip. Yeah, and and I, I, I just I mean, I, and I don't often feel sorry for for Lorna Slater. I mean, because I I have significant difficulties with the Greens because of the treatment of Andy Whiteman, but that is a that that is another issue. But you you said earlier, I mean, but, but to to look at the the candidates there, all three of them have said there's going to be a delay. Lorna Slater herself, there's going to be it looks like a year's grace for smaller producers is going to be coming about. Um, well, I watched the uh, that was a rather bizarre interview with Ash Reagan because uh, on uh, by Martin Geisler <clears throat> because of the fact that I mean, he, he was continually interrupting and eventually in, in the middle of two significant questions um, that it the, the, the throws and it, it wasn't there. And and just a, just on a, a personal opinion, I, I, I thought it was very, very interesting uh, the way she's moved on from saying it's not going to be a de facto referendum. Uh, this is a, I can't remember, is it a, a voter enabling mechanism, you know, which seems to be the, the whole point she's making is that a majority of seats and votes cast and we begin independence, sorry, voter empowerment mechanism, begin indirect negotiations immediately with the UK government, which I think will appeal to Voters within uh, the, in, in in the SNP in the the election, but I, I was I was just kind of taken aback, and this is just I have no support for any of the candidates and no saying it whatsoever. I was kind of taken aback by someone coming on like that who didn't seem to have a grasp of the facts, for example, about the NHS, what she would do, other than or get the right people in the right positions. It just seemed to be to me. In theory, Ash Reagan sounded a, a good candidate, but when actually questioned on air live, she didn't come over as more articulate as, as articulate and as prepared as whom's a Yusuf was to actually answer the questions which were put to him by Laura Koonsberg. Yeah, well, I, actually, I missed that because I was over on Lismore with my second uh, Estonia film showing of the of the week. But um, 
actually Ash was on uh, Scotland Tonight last night with John Mackay. And uh, similarly, you know, that was a equally kind of interesting exchange of, with with Scotland Tonight. It's always it's always kind of, you know, it's less sort of nippy in a way. So it mm-hmm. lets people. And, and the thing is that sometimes that actually, you know, having done an interviewing job many hundreds of years ago myself, uh, sometimes it's the silences that let people really tie themselves in knots, you know, where you, you give people slight room to hang themselves and they either do or they don't. So, you know, there's that to be said about the style. But nonetheless, um, yes, Ash kind of kind of comes back very quickly with I think this is possible because I can do it type answers. Mm-hmm. And you think, I don't really it just you expect she actually finishes speaking. She's the only candidate I've ever heard in my life, actually, who finishes speaking before the broadcaster's ready to <laughs> kind of come back with another question. Because you think, was that it? You know, like on many, many counts, um, it was just it'll be fine because I think I've got the capacity to do it. And there's a sort of, you know, she's got it. <laughs> she's got that kind of way of looking at the camera with a slight smile, which is I know this really is. <laughs> <laughs> a bit of a non-answer, but come on, if you think you're hard enough, you know, which I mean, you know, there's a certain verve in that you've got to say, but it's not enough. <laughs> you know, it's it's very much like a, a bag of it feels like a bag of disparate things that are being brought out one after another instead of a kind of strategy or, you know, fitting together mm-hmm. or coming from somewhere or being backed up by experience or just any insights into and actually detail. <laughs> policy yeah, the, strategy that was the, you know none yeah. basically it's just it's almost like things are there they haven't been done properly i'll fix them now another yeah. thing is what a blooming dunt to actually everybody in the snp because i think she's apologized for a whole stack of things that haven't been done well or properly i think she may have apologized for not <clears throat> continuing to duel the a9 now mm-hmm. i know because i spent a lot of my time thumping up and down you know that road and others that definitely uh you know people People would be very happy to hear that the dueling commitment, there's 11 miles of the, the A9 done. There's 70 miles to do. Um, it is an arterial route. You could, I, fair enough, You can. I had this argument with John Swinney 20 years ago about the fact that the train line to Inverness is also single track. Um, you know, if you want to start talking about proper strategic planning, it's a double track up to Aberdeen, but that's because it's got oil. So you can put more trains on. They can pass each other without having to wait at a freaking passing place, which is what happens on the route to Inverness. And then, of course, all the trains that radiate out from Inverness, dependent on passengers coming from the train to Inverness, which is waiting at a passing place because one coming in the other direction is broken down. That's your blooming rail mm-hmm. line north. So if people want to have proper conversations, that's why many people end up on the road. So, you know, I mean, I can remember that conversation with John Swinney. And he said, basically, you can't put a double track through Killy Cranky. I'll give him, I'll probably give him that, actually. <laughs> you know, I haven't gone through that many times in the train. But you don't need to leave the whole blasted thing single track for the one to Killy Cranky, you know. So anyway, um, you know, th- there's th- undoubtedly that will be a popular sort of thing to come out with is the idea of apologising on behalf of the Scottish government that she wasn't part of at the time for not fulfilling its dueling, you know, commitment. Mm-hmm. And various other apologies. But it just sort of seems a bit weird, you know, and it's doubtless coming back to this question of how you get things done in life. I do really wonder um, about the ability of people to kind of harness all their colleagues when they've basically, you know, dissed quite a number of their 
achievements mm-hmm. up, up to date or, you know, their policy stances or whatever you like. So uh, there's also the she's raised occasionally um, other issues like the, the constitutional convention she set up on day one. Now, again, you know, as people, we're all kind of think, yeah, yeah, beauty, yeah. that's 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 a good one. And um, then you've got. Okay, so Alba are going to be in there, right? Fine. They've got, you know, they're they're an independent supporting party, and there's many people doubtless listening to this who are members of Alba or sort of support them or whatever, or certainly think, yeah, they're there. Mm-hmm. Um, then you've got a bit of, you know, how you're actually going to get everybody to sit down and deal with one another together, and to what end, and whether this is a convention of all the independent supporting people. You know, including there are elected members, obviously, there's MPs and there's councillors. Um, whether you're going further and you're trying to sort of pull in the, the whole Scottish Parliament, what the Constitutional Convention is precisely doing as an engine, uh, I'd like to hear a bit more about that. Uh, but of course, the, the, there's now got a, a, there's a stuckness around whether or not a, a number of the issues that uh, Ash is putting forward are more like ALBA policy than SNP. So, for example, she's she's saying that she would rather join EFTA than the EU. Now, yeah. that's a direct, you know, mm-hmm. that's not to say it's a free blinking no. world. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, so exactly. I mean, you can come yeah. to the same uh, conclusion as somebody else without being endorsed by them. But it's just the fact that her campaign manager did work, was actually an ALBA candidate at the last yeah. election. I interviewed him actually in part of a Zoom thing I did for Highlands and Islands candidates. Um, he's left ALBA. He was in the SNP. So it's kind of just leaves people, I think, just leaves people a bit like they need to just get a clearer sense of slightly where she's coming from. Of course, Joanna Cherry's backing her. She's not mm-hmm. in Alba, but, you know, look at your Twitter feed and you'll get yes. lots of cross pelters going on about all of that. So, yes, I don't know yet that that, that she's yeah. she's kind of... I, and I think the thing is she needs, she needs to get a sort of a, an attachment a bit to her. Just you said something there where you were saying that she, you know, here she was on paper and then here she is in person. Yeah. And somebody needs to be more than on paper. Yeah, because when I was looking at it, I mean, uh, the, the statement she made, the, the movement has been divided for too long by petty differences and personal agendas. Check that box. Uh, move on from the Growth Commission. Absolutely. Move on from the Growth Commission. Um it's a broad church, and don't shy away from the the, the Peter Morell aspect. You know, she wasn't shying away from that. Uh, she go to Robin McCarthy, even though he's not an advisor, was there, and I know he's no longer officially involved with Commonweal. But again, it's that whole atmosphere that, as an individual, that would have been the grouping that I would have been most comfortable with. I think, you know. But again, it it didn't come over tr- tremendously well. I mean, I was, and I was disappointed. I'd be interested to see how that goes and if the, the, the devil is always in the detail. But she did talk about the broader movement and what, what concerned me and listen to Kate Fawcett to link into that was she was talking about a party-based independence campaign. I just wondered what she actually meant about mm. that. You know? Yeah. Well, I think this is... <laughs> the day before Ash was having her launch on Friday, I noticed that Kate had... Um, I'm trying to remember which, which of... Of, of ashes oh yeah at that point i think kate put a thing out saying it would be great to work with the wider movement and some think tanks like common wheel have been ignored for too long and i thought whoa somebody's mm-hmm. spiking guns there in a big way you know which is kind of like you know that's that's the way these things rock 
because obviously Ash worked for Commonweal. That is a major plank of her, what she was mm-hmm. about to say the next day. So I think, uh, you know, the Kate Forbes team had looked at that and thought the way to sort of neutralise um, a kind of difficult a challenge from Ash Reagan's direction is to, you know, sound a lot more inclusive and acknowledge that, I mean, suddenly Commonweal that has not had no traction and you know, recognition yes. from the SNP for 10 years is a blooming talk of a steamy, you know, which is, I find, o- over time. Just while we're at it, I think Robin is actually policy director of Commonweal. He used to be uh, never right. a bummer, but, but basically that's Amanda Bergara now. So he is still yeah. uh, t- he's still involved with it. Right. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's it, but I suppose the thing is when you look at the kind of, OK, firebrand that obviously Robin is um, and that sort of, you know, really you can you can think he's gone too far. You can say what you like, but by gum, it hangs together as an argument. It's passionate. It, you know, it's it's very personal and directed. And you feel his life is in what he's saying. And then you don't kind of get that feeling with Ash somehow, you know, uh, who, who as the sort of almost commonweal candidate within all of this. And you'd also have to say she's got to be careful with that, I guess, because many of the common wheel folk actually left the SNP uh, when they didn't get anywhere um, over that period where there was a slate elected on, including Douglas Chapman as treasurer. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying he's a common wheel candidate, but there's a sort of, you know, uh, and Joanna Cherry got in. Uh, you know, this was a sort of, you know, let's let the air in. Let's get, you know, a bit of internal democracy going. Um, and you'll have seen that story running on Sunday where everyone expected something massive to drop on Monday that didn't happen um, about the interviews the police are conducting with mm-hmm. people about the finances of the SNP, which is an ongoing background, another piece of the scenery kind of falling off. Uh, but anyway, the, the point simply being that at that point when those guys tried and felt they were getting nowhere, uh, a lot of them just threw threw in the towel and left. Some joined Alba, some then left Alba, some just left. But the point would be that if Ash is trying to be the Commonweal candidate, uh, and I don't know if that's she is framing it up that way, and maybe this is why she's not, because you know those guys left. They're not in the membership anymore. And I think a lot of SNP members would have looked at some of the stuff that Robin's written, particularly about Nicola, and thought, wow, mm-hmm. you know. <laughs> so, fuck ends. Yes. I mean, as I say, what the, you, you, one of the, I think uh, Holmes' use of his, again, in the interview with Laura Coonsworth, played it very, very smartly when he was questioned upon the record of uh, within the NHS and his record as Justice Secretary and Transport Secretary was very, very clever. But what he did talk about was negotiating, conciliation, consult, you know, working with people, you know, compromising. Now, again, I just think it was a smart play and he he, he did answer the questions uh, very, very articulately. And again, he's, he's, made, a, he's made an interesting uh, policy announcement this morning in his first budget. Uh, that uh, there will be free uh, universal childcare for one and two year olds up to 22 hours a week because currently it's it's means tested. So I mean again making making a bed again for social being socially progressive, and once he got beyond the hope, which was the vast majority of it, with Laura Coonsworth, once he got beyond faith and all these matters, he did explain his position. I think in a way that Kate Forbes should have thought about 
in advance. And what we're coming down to is what you've said very clearly. It's not about the ideas that people had, but it's very often about the way these are communicated. Mm-hmm. And it's it's to me, I mean, it's, as I say, semi-detached suburban Mr. Joyce. It it is that range of people are going to have to make a compromise in terms of the leader, because, as as I said last week, John McLean is not standing for leader of the SNP. And then people are going to have to to make their judgments based upon that. I'll be intrigued to see how to see how the debates go. And I think that could be a a major significance for the, the electorate, which is the SNP membership. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and I think now it would probably be, you know, well, it would probably be an idea for folk to think that it's just worth letting people trot through their stuff now before yes. you, you say things you can't unsay. Yeah. And that's the difficulty with all of this. Um, I mean, this may also be a controversial thing to say, but I mean, much as I am somebody who, uh, you know, like, for, for example, it's one reason that I would never be in elected office because I have this horrible compulsion to sort of tell the truth. Right. And I don't mean that in, in a sort of, hey, no. look, am I not brilliant, whatever. There's times you have to not. Mm-hmm. Now, people find this very, you know, a bit hard to take. But, for example, I had a gastroscopy, you know, the thing put down your throat mm-hmm. uh, two weeks ago. I was in company uh, a couple of days afterwards with somebody who was going in for one the next day. They asked me what it was like. Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. I didn't tell the truth. <laughs> yes. You know, I sort of just, you know, I kind of changed the conversation a bit and just, you know, whatever, and actually said, yeah, you know, just it's a good idea to get the, you know, if they offer you the sedatives and the throat spray, don't just be a gallus, what's it, and just say, no, I can just take the throat spray. Take the lot, man. You know, just take the lot. And and just said, you know, and so it's essentially it was a doddle. I mean, it's a pretty weird thing to have this thing happen to you, you know, and you could invest it with a lot of the real feelings you were having at the time. But what if this guy's going in the next day for one? Nah. And this is the thing. It's like there's a lot of times where if you say strongly what you think about something, you know, that's that's fine. But then how does how do how do other people's feelings enter into that? How do their realities frame that, especially if you're leader of a party and actually a country? Um, it's then very hard to sort of step back from that. People have pointed out that, um, you know, should there be a backbench bill to change equal marriage provision within the Scottish Parliament? Where would Kate Forbes stand on that? Yeah. Now, I mean, I, I'm not trying to say she would automatically no. support it because I think she's no. put a lot of energy into trying to say, you know. She wouldn't roll back. Yeah. But, you know, you're not totally sure on that, whereas you're pretty totally sure on other people. So um, I, I just think there's a point where, uh, you know, I know people are, are sort of saying, oh, you know, when you hear a lot of flummery and people won't come to the point, it's a politician's answer. And for sure, that is massively irritating. But again, not to kind of, you know, be bumming up Nicola too much because, you know, the, the failure to deliver on a lot of policy areas is now what's causing the Westminster government to be able to walk in. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, so that's, you know, that's a pretty major failing. But in terms of how she explains stuff, she was tremendously skillful in appearing to be somebody who answered every question. And I don't know how many British commentators I've seen say that. That yes. she was the only person who ever tried to engage with them. But she would not necessarily give hostages to fortune where she'd say something without walking 360 degrees around its likely impact first. And that's it's only when you see someone else. It's a bit like acting, you know, it's only when you see what how well made a film is, when you see one that just doesn't work yeah, at doesn't all. Do you know? yes. and, and these, you know, naturally, anyone who works, who perfor- essentially performs well, uh, 
will be seamless. So you're not going to see the effort because that's the mm. whole point. Um, so anyway, I wish now people would just kind of, you know, hold this this tendency to need to have loud policy statements um, and I'll fix things, which seems to be Ash's thing. I'd watch that, you know, because that definitely seems to be trashing your own party's mm. record, which is a you know, dodgy place to go. Um, you know, Kate's kind of use of language where she was talking, I've sort of forgotten the phrase about the bottle to deposit scheme. What was it again? It was really another quite over the top sort of, um, mm. it wasn't cataclysm. It was something, you know, yeah, kind something of akin to really, that, yeah. I mean, you know, about, bot- I mean, okay. But yeah. again, right. Because that's, if that's your register, you're going to have to keep reaching it with every policy statement mm. you make. And then that actually, that, you know, that sort of alienates a lot of people. And is it necessary? You know, because that's almost like you're, it's almost like the red dress. You're loud, girl. You know what I mean? <laughs> But that, that was part of a pitch, you know, you get about getting closer to closer to business, you know, and, well, and economic con, it, it economic is, competence. Yeah. True. I mean, sure. But I, I don't know that that still, you know, requires that level of. No. It, I mean, it's like when people who are sort of in their 60s say, oh, you know, it's just because I'm getting old. I said, you know, you've just knocked everyone who's 80, 90 and older into yeah. a contact. They're older. Right. Yeah, but you're not. Just let's keep framing mm. language properly. Humsa is then then therefore being tempted into some of this kind of you know hyperbolic phrasing to try to kind of get himself into the game and I'm pretty glad that he's resisting actually I mean that announcement about universal childcare is a complete game changer for for mm-hmm. people if that one goes ahead I, I'd like to see how they've you know how they'll manage to do the, the the money on that I mean to be fair I think they're probably getting quite close to some aspects of that but still yeah. if it was no ifs no buts and it has to be full-time church okay there's so many snags as everybody who you'll mm-hmm. as a very yes. caring granddad you'll know more than most but you know everybody who's who's suffering because of the ludicrous situation about childcare in the whole of britain um scotland included it uh, will say you know it's it's to t- t- kind of have nine till two is not really gonna let you have no. a job you know so it, there's a lot of devil in the detail but to me, this is the right kind of way to be moving because that's a, an, an, a that's not a hyperbolic, empty phrase about you know no. a small policy. That's a biggie. Yes, it is. I mean, and I will stand up for Kate Forbes in this because unlike Keir Starmer, who lied his way through the the Labour Party leadership in order to come elected and then reneged completely on everything he said, at least Kate Forbes is telling the truth. And that's, you know, and what she genuinely believes and she's just coming out with it and saying it. And so anybody from the Labour Party is pointing the finger at that. Yeah, just cacani, pals, because your man lied in his teeth to become elected to his own membership. So there we go. Aye, and talking about lying in your teeth, here we go. That oven ready Brexit deal, which the Northern Ireland Protocol was part of, that apparently the Conservatives, the current Conservative government, had nothing at all to do with the previous iteration of the Conservative government, has now been amended with what looks to be a, despite what James cleverly said, to be a significant compromise between the European Union and the UK government, which was supported on all sides yesterday, uh, including Stephen Flynn, who I thought gave an absolutely excellent uh, speech, which, which, uh, did terminate with the fact of uh, and what's the difference between Scotland and Northern Ireland because these are both parts of the UK which voted to remain 
within the European Union? An answer from Mr Sunak came there none. Yeah, um, I mean, sure, you know, this is it. This looks like it's, it's a pretty clever deal and everybody's moved a bit um, from from the descriptions people are, are having. It seems that the second Boris demitted the stage with the histrionics mm-hmm. over the top and hyperbolic phrasing about everything. Um, a lot of civil servants were suddenly able to start talking to one another properly uh, in, in the advent of Rishi Sunak, finally. They got a technocrat who is actually as technocratic as the Europeans. So uh, they got somebody who would come in, not invest the thing with emotional overload and basically just talk through mechanisms uh, to try to get sort of a deal. So it looks like the the businesses are there's a there's the trusted trader scheme that they've got mm-hmm. is basically going to be sharper. You know, there's going to be more checks on that. Uh, it's going to be harder and the criteria are going to be tougher to sign up to it in the first place. But after that, you're pretty much going to have two lanes once you, you know, you're kind of coming into Northern Ireland. And it looks like that everybody is fairly confident they can make that work. Yep, you're going to have to accept the uh, European Court of Justice to adjudicate problems. But then that's again, the you know, this mm-hmm. weird sort of preoccupation with the... Uh, if they're not expecting to get there that often. And it's, you know, classic of the whole Brexit shrill sort of sovereignty thing that this one aspect of stuff that is basically there like a handbrake. I'll give you that you wouldn't want a car without a handbrake. But, you know, that seems to be still what preoccupies them. The, the Stormont government, but then it has to be sitting to do this. Um, yes. has got its emergency break. If there's any changes yes. to EU goods rules and it has to be based on cross community consent. Well, that would. That means that basically anything that's incoming from the EU uh, can be suspended if at least 30 members of the assembly, that's a third of them, uh, say that they want to apply this Stormont break. Uh, But, you know, the the hope is that once you've actually got back into having an assembly, you're going to look pretty weedy if you start, you know, fumbling around for the handbrake when you've actually agreed to something up front that pretty mm-hmm. much frames you up for for life to return to something resembling normal. So there's definitely quite a number of kind of gambles sitting in all of this. But the biggest kind of reality or gamble in it is a poll that I saw, uh, which is very interesting, that suggested that in 2019, two thirds of British voters thought Brexit was the most important issue. So 66 percent. Mm-hmm. Today, it's 15. Right. So partly that's, you know, everyone's fed up with this now. Um, And okay, even people in Northern Ireland just want to get something sorted. Um, So at the the moment, of course, everybody knows that all eyes are now. Yeah, the European Research Group have said they'll take this away and pour over it. But, you know, even some of their numbers, I mean, Steve Baker had a remarkable contribution. Absolutely, yes. (laughs) Which actually, if you didn't see that, everybody, this is the Northern Ireland Minister. And this is the real hard man of kind of Brexit, Northern Ireland stuff. Uh, this is the man who whose who's naughty word uh, uttered by Krishnan Gurumurthy resulted in his week's ban from Channel 4, right? Um, and he was on basically almost weeping and saying that he'd been, he practically had a nervous breakdown over mm-hmm. the stress of trying to keep this whole thing together. And actually, I would just humbly suggest that that is a real insight into where an awful lot of Scots feel at the moment with this blooming leadership issues, actually, <laughs> because it's never-ending stress. You know, to to be under this constant uncertainty of direction, of strategy, of personalities, of sides, of defending things, of 
strategizing arguments. I mean, I've got to say it bloody wears me out, you know. So anyway, back to Northern Ireland, though. So anyway, those guys, it looks like a lot of the ERG are pretty much on side. The question then, of course, is uh, NI itself. Um, So, you know, Jeffrey Donaldson is managing to say, yeah, we were right. Pulling out of the uh, Stormont was what basically got these, you know, these guys out of the heat. So they're going to take that back to their voters and say, see, we actually got a result, folks, right? Mm-hmm. Um, in the hope that they stave off the traditional unionist voice, which is their outlier group. Jim Allister is actually saying that this is still effectively the protocol staying in place yeah. and he's urging the DUP to reject it. Now, there is that's the only fl- well major fly in the ointment is sitting right there. Um, who, who, how important are the TUV? They've only got one seat in the yeah. assembly at the moment, the DUP of 25. But they got 8% of the vote last time round and their transfers, because it's a single transferable vote system, their transfers basically bolstered all the unionist yeah. candidates. So they're not nothing and they're still yeah. not pleased. Yeah, well, it's again, it's, it's, it's numbers again coming back to because, as you said, it's 30 MLAs for a petition of concern. That means that uh, an issue is subject to a cross-community uh, vote. But it's got to be from two or more parties. So how do we, we look at it? The the DUP, I see, again, this is the thing for, for our listeners. Possibly you may know this because you're informed, but you've got to actually designate yourself when you enter as an MLA into Northern Assembly as unionist, nationalist or the other, and other is the alliance and people for profit. There are 18 of them. There are 25 DUP. There's one TUV, but listen to this, there are nine Ulster unionists. So in order for a petition of concern to actually pass from a unionist side, the DUP have got to get the Ulster unionists on board in order to meet the objective of getting 30 30 MLAs. Because I'm I'm presuming that nobody from Sinn Féin or the SDLP Alliance or People for Profit are leaping to bed with the DUP to turn over this agreement. So it's the, the Ulster unions are going to be in a very, very interesting position because if that actually yeah. goes through, yeah, that's the, that's the bit there. So it will it be the return of the Ulster unionists to a, a position of uh, power within the Northern Ireland Assembly? Yeah, yeah, it could be. But still, <clears throat> I mean, essentially, it, it does show you the importance of timing because, mm-hmm. you know, there's personality and timing in this in that, uh, yeah, obviously, the different personality at the helm has allowed the civil servants to just go and start getting everybody to talk to each other, which they could always clearly have done. But the timing is such that the public, you know, all the empty stuff about Brexit. I mean, if you wanted to keep delving into the opinion polls of the British electorate, you know, nearly 55 percent of them think Brexit was a mistake. That will be mm-hmm. slightly connected to why it isn't important anymore, because it hasn't worked. So, you know, that's fine that Northern Ireland has finally got something maybe that is workable. I mean, we still need to see how it will work. And it is an interesting one because that sort of twin track approach does give you an interesting insight into how uh, borders can work across, (laughs) you know, an EU member and a non-member sitting sort of side by side with Scotland independence, etc. But still, you know, that doesn't solve Brexit's problems. I mean, here we are with, what is it, you know, the average shopping over a year will be £811 more expensive Everything is just, it's unbelievable. You keep, you know, I paid my insurance for a car yesterday and thought, what the, 
you know, I mean, I've Ek. got my no, non-claims. There's another year of non-claims bonus. I haven't become a dodgier person in any respect. You know, what's happened here? It's almost 100 quid more. And I thought, oh, I'll shop around. They're all like that. Mm-hmm. So everything is up. And OK, you know, some of it is due to other reasons. But, geez, so much. I mean, I wish I had the statistics here. But in terms of growth, <clears throat> you know, the, the EU in general is in growth. Germany's in growth. The US is in growth. We're sitting just borderline recession. Um, so there's no question that Brexit has has de- dealt such incredible blows to the whole economy. And that now gets tidied up a bit by this. Uh, you know, if this is a victory in Northern Ireland, then it makes it look like that's extending. People are talking about, you know, there's headlines apparently in the sun or something. You know, goodbye, Boris. It was Rishi what got Brexit done. Well, if that is Brexit done, you know, this is like a yeah. bit like a cat's coming with some poor half mangled mouse and setting it <laughs> down in front of you. You go, I don't think I really want that. Thank you very much. I mean, yeah. it's a mangled piece of nonsense what we've got now for Brexit. And if that's it done, really, you know, this is OK for now. You get some brownie points. But basically, the majority of people who voted for Rishi Sunak and who will vote for Keir Starmer do not give a toss about Northern Ireland. It is the supremely proxy subject. It's only there to kind of make points about it's not there in terms of anything else. Now, success is good because, hey, the British government have been supremely unsuccessful at managing to get anything that works through. But when the paint dries on this, you come back to the initial problems and boy, they will ramp up because we're coming into the season where we need agricultural workers soon. We need all sorts of seasonal workers we need workers. We've still yeah. got an NHS crisis. We've got all sorts of blinking crises. And the public's wise to this now. They can see the connections uh, between the loss of free movement uh, and the loss of investment, the difficulties with trade. You know, so this is great. Everybody in the UK can go, yeah, dancer. If we're sending stuff to Northern Ireland, we can send one consignment now instead of having to have separate paperwork and separate consignments for stuff if it was going to potentially go through to the Republic of Ireland or stay in Northern Ireland. Ah, You can just have one consignment with a few bits of different paperwork and it's much, much, much simpler. Well, glory be. What about the 97,000 X, you know, other businesses that are still having to cope with all sorts of paperwork to get stuff through to Europe? You know, so anyway, I don't think this gets them with one bound. They are free in any way at all, although, you know, they will naturally you know, have a bit of reflected glory, which is deserved if they've managed to settle the threat of violence that yes. still sits sitting on the corner yes. of this. We can see um, that clearly yes, from, from what happened, uh, yeah, in Oma. Then you know that is that is a result, but it's not going to impress the British electorate beyond a week. Yeah, and just to say on that that matter, it was happening to see the leaders of all, of the major political parties uh, in Northern Ireland come together, condemn the action of these uh, terrorists who are continuing to fight uh, an unjustifiable, in their eyes, war. Um, but uh, just I'm going to I'm going to have to move on again. It may, it may seem a bit of a leap as we we come to to our, our point, but. Uh, uh, both of us, uh, I had a bit of a gala evening, and you had a you had a gala a gala showing of the as, as you mentioned earlier of your Estonia movie. 
Yeah, just just briefly. Um, I mean, it was it was very it was actually well. And unfortunately for Estonia, the the day that they have designated as their Independence Day, which actually celebrates when they declared independence in 1918, uh, not the second iteration, mm-hmm. um, because that was their stance all the time that they were always independent and just denied it for a while. Um, anyway, it's the 105th anniversary of that. Sadly, that is now also the day that will always be remembered as Russia invading yeah. Ukraine. So it was a very sort of poignant thing. Actually, the DCA uh, was sold out for the, the the screening, which was tremendous. The Estonian consul uh, and his wife, who is Estonian, Diane, was there. And also uh, Joe Dunnigan, the, fil- the cameraman who had completed the film for us because lockdown meant that after our initial visit, we mm. couldn't go back to do filming. So Joe, who is from Dundee, had come all the way back uh, from Estonia for this filming, you know, mostly to see his mum. And uh, it was lovely to see the reaction to him. He's a lovely lad. And he was there. He was wearing a kilt, which he's apparently been wearing uh, for several years in Estonia, which must make him both extremely distinctive and very cold. Um, <laughs> but so it was it was a lovely evening. And then actually I went right across country to the island of Lismore off Oban, where about 35 people gathered, which in terms of the proportion of the population of the island was pretty high, uh, to watch the, the film again. And so many interesting points made and questions and thoughts, you know, so it was a brilliant couple of days. Well, I mean, mine was uh, on Wednesday night, the Dundee Night Supporters Foundation, uh, and I won't dwell on personal grief here considering the way the, the team is currently playing and the way the club is currently organised but we had a special night uh, for the the play Smile which is the Jim McLean story written by the fantastic Phil Differ uh, and I don't normally do this because when you're, you're talking about things but I feel necessary to actually not just mention Phil who wrote it but Barry Hunter who plays Jim McLean, Chris Alexander who plays everybody else, the director Sally Reid the set and costume designed by Kenny Miller for football supporters, no, not that Kenny Miller, was absolutely fantastic, as was the lighting design, Lizzie Powell, and the sound design of Fee Johnson. It was a fantastic evening. And it's an hour, it's a two-handed play, and it's an exploration of FITBA, the Scottish game. It's an, also an exploration of masculinity, of class, of sectarianism, of love in the final in the final point it's about love and I, I, w- I would recommend it highly to everyone plus the fact it is the the most uh, creative and funniest use of swearing i have heard since the commitments it was a, <laughs> the sweariest piece of work i've been up for for years and it's fabulous and it's extremely emotional and i would say to anyone who's you don't have to be interested in football, but if you are into football, it's it's an amazing exploration of its significance and to community and the obsession that can actually drive out everything else uh, when it's focused on one man who is a who is Im, who embeds the cooperative nature as as uh, as uh, Bill Shankly described that socialism about the politics of football. But in his individual leadership style was an absolute dictator, or as the players called him, a bampot. But it is a tremendous piece of work, and I thoroughly recommend it to everyone. And for someone like me, who it was, it was going back. And I wasn't alone in this, but with the flickering images of the set, which seemed to be placing Jim McLean either in limbo or in the last flickering moments of his 
his awareness as the dementia took over of his reflection on his life. It's extremely emotional. And I can assure you, many a tear was shed. Go and see it, folks. I, I, I can, can't recommend it highly enough. Oh, well, that was a that was a very. Yep. I will do that thing. Right. And as as I look out, I didn't see the northern lights. And I'm possibly the only person in Scotland who didn't. But as I say, I'm looking out the window and I just couldn't see it from here uh, uh, for the last couple of nights. It's an absolutely stunning day. The sun is shining over the Tay. And on that hopeful note, we'll see you next week, Johns. <laughs>